Let me invite you to take the Bibles. You should have found a black Bible on your seats. And if you want to use that one, uh, to turn to page 920, page 920, Acts chapter 11. And we're looking at the last few verses at the end of this chapter. Acts chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, so here's a link back to chapter 7, the death of Stephen, the beginning of chapter 8. Those who were scattered because of Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking non-Jewish people, also preaching the Lord Jesus. They crossed the racial barrier. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. What phrase do you use most often when you pray? I wonder what phrase you think I use most often. We tend to develop uh, little cliches and little phrases we use, don't we? Stock words, stock ways of speaking that we use all the time when we're praying. And so see if, see if you agree with this. I think probably the most common thing, the most common phrase we use in prayer is to ask God to be with someone. Don't you think? Lord, be with so and so. We want you to be with them. Maybe, maybe a more common phrase is to say, would you bless them, Lord? Maybe that's the phrase you choose. Be with them. Comes out so quickly and easily, doesn't it? I remember years ago hearing um, a minister say that he decided to pray through a book called Operation World. I don't know if you've ever seen that book. Some of you will know it. It's a book that's about this big and it lists every single country in the world alphabetically. Uh, so he started off, uh, opened it, started, opened it A of course. He started praying for Albania and then he would pray for Algeria and Angola and on it goes all the way. And he said it was so exhausting but by the time he got through the A's he just simply said, Lord, be with all the B's. 
it's much easier, isn't it, just to say, Lord, be with somebody, be, be with them. Asking for God's presence, we do it all the time, don't we, in prayer. E- even, I think, when we ask God to bless someone, what we're saying is, give your presence to them, Lord. Whenever we ask God to go with us, or to keep us, or to guide us, even there we are asking God simply to be with us, aren't we? And the lovely thing in front of us this morning in Acts chapter 11 is that Acts chapter 11 says when God is with you, when that prayer is answered, here is what it looks like. Just look again at verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. It's easy to say be with so and so, be with us. Lord, but if he is, and when he is, what do you see? I want to show you five things from these verses. Five things that you see when the hand of the Lord is with his people. I'm going to say more about some of them than others. Some of them we've seen already. uh, But we're going to look at these together. Five things. Here's the first one. Number one. When the Lord's hand is with his people, what you see is surprisingly fruitful Persecution. Number one, surprisingly fruitful persecution. To ask God to be with us, to ask for the Lord's hand among us, friends, is to ask a fearful thing. Always a fearful thing. Who is it we are asking to be present with us? Oh, the Lord's hand. When he, when, when he reaches down from heaven and places it on his people, what does it look like? Have you seen it? Persecution and suffering. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. See, the, the Lord was with Stephen, wasn't he? Stephen wasn't abandoned, wasn't on his own. He didn't die alone. No, the first Christian martyr, as Stephen dies, remember he looks up to heaven and sees the Lord Jesus there standing. As clear a sign of Christ's presence with his people as you could get. He is with him and he is with his people. Remember Saul? Saul, why are you persecuting me? As Saul harms his people, oh, the Lord is with his persecuted people. And and the book of Acts, you see, is one of the tools that God has in his toolkit to teach his people that their presence in the world, speaking about the Lord Jesus in the world, is always, always going to bring opposition and hatred. And when it happens, it is precisely a sign that God is with his people, not against them. If the world hated me, Jesus said, what will it do to you? Hate you too. Remember what the Lord Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Judea, right in front of us. Then you'll go a bit further to Samaria. And then you will go to the ends of the earth. Remember those words? The ends of the earth. And and I imagine a kind of ready line of volunteers for the task. World travel, Lord, yes. Sign me up. How's it going to happen? Speaking about you to the ends of the earth, Lord. What are we going? To, is it going to be the internet? Can we just do a video and broadcast it, Lord, to the ends of the earth? Is, is that how it's going to happen? 
Now look at chapter 8 verse 1. Saul approved of Stephen's execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered. They were all scattered. I am going to scatter you, says God. Now when when you see that scattering, whose hand is doing it? Oh yes, it looks like Saul, doesn't it? It looks like the Jewish leaders. It looks like President Assad in Syria. It looks like Idi Amin. Look, pick your, pick your dictator in world history. We see their hand, don't we? But Act says, can you see the Lord's hand? Mass global migration. We know all about it with all its attendant problems. But mass global migration has always been one of the greatest tools in the hand of the Lord for the spread of the gospel. And friends, we must not fear it. We must not fear persecution and suffering. It is surprisingly fruitful. This church family, Trinity, many of you have joined in recent years. Trinity was born in the fires of persecution. It was real. All over Scotland in many different ways. New churches were birthed in turmoil and tears. And immense heartache and suffering. And slowly bit by bit by bit we are seeing fruit. So friends this morning. I don't know where you are personally. Maybe you feel you're in the fires of persecution. Perhaps it's real. I know for some of us. At work with one individual or colleagues on the whole. For many of us, I suspect, these are days of relative ease. In times of relative ease, I want to encourage us to grow spiritual backbone. And to prepare for fruitfulness to come, not from all the soft times and the good times, but for fruitfulness to come from the very fires of affliction. I think it takes eyes of faith to see this. I think it takes historical perspective to see this. History can teach us that this is how God works. We have a a couple in America at the minute, Ben and Sarah Trainer, who are studying at a college uh, in North Carolina, Charlotte. And the pastor of the church that Ben and Sarah go to, Kevin DeYoung, a well-known pastor. Kevin DeYoung is about to give a lecture in the coming days called The First Sexual Revolution. The first sexual revolution. What what he's talking about is all the way back to the days of the Roman Empire. If you go all the way back to the, the days when Rome ruled the world, sexual morality was as permissive as you could get. Desire was able to be fulfilled in a myriad of ways and the gospel changed it. The gospel changed it. The first sexual revolution was not in the 1950s or the 1960s. With free love taking hold and so on. No, the first sexual revolution was the first century as the gospel began to take hold. See, look look at our text this morning. Look where they are travelling to because of persecution. Phoenicia, verse 19, Cyprus and Antioch. Antioch. This was the capital of the Roman province of Syria. It was the third largest city in the world at the time. 
Jerusalem that they had left, you see, was a religious city, but Antioch was a secularized city, cosmopolitan, predominantly pagan, and it had a reputation for rampant sexual immorality. And into that world of anything goes with anybody who will have you, into that world the gospel comes. People arrive speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and in time, friends, In time, the first sexual revolution was underway. The ancient world came to embrace Christian sexual ethics. See, Kevin DeYoung's point is, do not fear the tide you are standing against. It has happened once before. Maybe God is returning us back to Rome. Only for the gospel to take over again, to be a revolution again. Sexuality and gender is the frontier today for the persecution of believers. Isn't that right? At least for us in the West. Sexuality and gender is where the battle rages and there will be casualties and cost. But never fear that all will be lost. Some of you know the name Tom Holland. He's written a a book called Dominion. It's a a book about the triumph, in a way, of the the gospel through the whole world, right down to the way that our society is structured today. Here's what Tom Holland says. The triumphs of the Me Too movement. Okay, hashtag Me Too that is, uh, over the last couple of years, has dominated the media in, in many, many excellent ways. Tom Holland says, the triumphs of the Me Too movement, the very idea that the female body is not the plaything of powerful men... That is a Christian idea. Maybe without Christian thinking, the Me Too movement would not even exist, Tom Holland says. For only the gospel says people, male, female, are intrinsically valuable. Full of dignity and worth. Maybe perhaps for us in the West, the pain and persecution of God's people. Maybe we are only decades away from another surprising revolution. God can do it. Persecution can be fruitful. Number two, when the Lord's hand is at work, you see this too. Number two, effective but anonymous evangelists. Effective but anonymous evangelists. In the verses we read, who stands out here? Who seems to get the attention and the spotlights? Barnabas and Saul, isn't it? Where does Barnabas appear? Verse 22. And really from 22 to the end it's all about them. They're the big names aren't they? Barnabas and Saul. They're the ones you want to get to speak at your conferences aren't they? And because of the growth in Antioch. The church in Jerusalem verse 22 sends down a big name. Barnabas. And when he gets there he says oh look I know someone who can help you. I'm well connected. I'll go and get this guy Saul. He's got the best Christian podcast there is. Everybody's listening to him. He's the biggest, got the biggest number of downloads. I can get him here to teach you. A prophet, Agabus, gets a mention. And then it's more Barnabas and Saul. Do you see what's happening? They're doing all the organizing, all the managing. But friends, here is something beautiful. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church. The report of what? That all throughout Antioch, people were turning to the Lord. Why? Why do they need to send for Barnabas and Saul? Because of effective but anonymous 
evangelists. Did you spot it? People who today lie in unknown graves with non-famous headstones in forgotten corners of the world. And yet they were people who spoke the gospel, shared the gospel, and it, it literally, friends, it literally changed the world. Look at verse 19. Now, those who were scattered, who were they? We don't know. Verse 20, look at this phrase, but there were some of them. That's all we know about them. And look. Look what they're doing. They're continuing what God has started with Peter. They're taking the doors of his kingdom and throwing it wide open. Throwing it wide open to the Gentiles. See, if you look at verse 19 again, the first folks who are scattered stick with the status quo, don't they? They they share the gospel with Jews. That's what they were used to. But some people speak to the Hellenists. You might have a little footnote Greek-speaking non-Jews, they cross the racial and religious divide and they share the gospel and they light the blue touch paper. And because of them there is growth, a growth problem for church leaders to manage. Barnabas is only here, friends, because of nameless men and women who created a pastoral problem for him. It's beautiful, isn't it? Barnabas is here because men and women gave him a pastoral problem. We saw this last Sunday evening at church in 1 Thessalonians. The mission of the church is we need leaders, we need teachers, we need preachers. But the verbs that God gives to his church are plural verbs. All of us need to encourage the faint-hearted, admonish the idle, comfort the grieving. And here all of them speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. All of them. Effective, but anonymous. Let me ask you if you've ever heard of Humphrey Monmouth. Anybody here ever heard of Humphrey Monmouth? One or two, a couple of nods. I know, why, I know why you've heard of him, the ones who say you have. Probably very few heard of Humphrey Monmouth, but I bet you've heard of William Tyndale. The man who translated the Bible into English. You may know the incredible life-changing effects of William Tyndale's work. He was, at the end of his life, hanged for heresy. For what he was doing. Trying to get what you and I have in front of us this morning. An English Bible. Trying to put an English Bible in the hands of all Christians. Hanged for heresy. His last words. His last breath. He shouted out, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Open his eyes. And he died with those words just a prayer echoing in the wind. But two years after he died, two years later, God answered his prayer. He did open the eyes of the King of England who ordered that a copy of the English Bible should be placed in every parish church throughout the land. Amazing story, beautiful story. Tyndale is the name in lights. Isn't he? His publishing houses named after him, buildings named after him. And Humphrey Monmouth made it all happen in the background. So captivated by the same gospel as Tyndale was he that he funded it all, made it all possible. Any of you ever heard of a man called Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf? No? 
He said this, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Which is kind of amazing because we've all forgotten him. (laughs) Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Isn't that wonderful? Who, Who am I as a Christian? And nobody trying trying to tell everybody about somebody. About a special someone. That's all I am. Some of you here today are excellent evangelists. You're way better than you think you are. There are folk here in our midst today. I've seen you as I look out today. There are folks here who have become Christians over the last few years. All because you invited them along. Some of you email me from time to time. I've, I've got this idea. Can we do this? Should, should we start this thing? I'd, I'd like to do this. I'd like to give money to that. Nine times out of ten, my thinking is, here is an evangelist doing evangelism. Wanting to see more evangelism happen. And it is wonderful. And you will know nine times out of ten, I just try to say, you do it. Crack on. At the same time, I know many of us here today, look at verses 19 and 20, and you think, well, I would just love to be in the anonymous those of verse 19 and the unnamed some of them. But I just don't know how to do it. There there is a skill to it. You see verse 20? What do they do on coming to Antioch? They speak to the Hellenists, also preaching. Now notice this phrase, preaching the Lord Jesus. This is a significant change. Up to now in the book of Acts, the evangelism has been to Jews. And it has always been preaching Jesus Christ. Christ is his royal title. It's it's a word that made sense to Jews when they heard Christ. Ah yes, they said, we're talking about the king. But to Gentiles, to Greeks from Antioch, you might as well be speaking double Dutch if you use the word Christ. Now these are skillful evangelists. This man we're telling you about is the Lord. You know what they're saying? They're saying to the people in Antioch, you see that man Caesar? He is not the king. He is not the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Oh, they know how to take the same gospel and apply it to other parts of the world. So friends, we're we're going to do this, I hope, over the coming months and into the next year as we prepare to move into Queen Street. When we move into that city centre location, what is our greatest need? It is not loads of new ministries straight away, not loads of new initiatives. No, we, we do that, we start loads of things, we'll start with a bang and we will all be knackered by our first Christmas. Many Christians want to be like lighthouses, don't they? Standing tall, sending the light out in huge big shafts, out far away in great big ventures. But where is darkest near a lighthouse? At its own base, isn't it? Right close to home. The areas around the base are lost in darkness. No, friends, let's learn to shine together. To invite a neighbour in. A school mum in that we've met. A work colleague. To speak to them one to one about the Lord Jesus. If we do that, what we do in Queen Street will grow its own arms and legs. It will take care of itself. What do we need? To learn how to speak to someone about the Lord Jesus. Here is a wonderful resource that I hope we'll, I hope we'll come to see more of. It's called the Word 
one-to-one. The, the simple idea is taking this booklet, opening John's Gospel with a friend and simply reading one-to-one your way through the Gospel. Here's a question. What do you make of this? Here's what I think it means. The idea is that you are talking to people naturally over coffee. You don't have to be here at the lectern. Over coffee, sharing your home, sharing your life and opening the Bible to share Christ. I'll put this on the table afterwards. You can have a look at it. I hope we're going to hear and see more about it in the coming the coming months. Number three, when the Lord's hand is with you, you see encouraging and wise leaders. Encouraging and wise leaders. Look at verse 22. I just love this. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Who do they send? Who does this growing, exploding church need? Barnabas. His real name was Joseph. Barnabas is his nickname. Son of encouragement is what it means. Son of encouragement. It's it's giving him a name that fits his character. Like the seven dwarves. You know, you look at them. you're, You're sleepy. You're bashful. You're dopey. People looked at this man and said, you are an encourager. The name fits the character of who you are. And you can see why they sent him. Look back at chapter 9 verse 26. When Saul, remember this man who has persecuted and murdered believers. When he'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And of course, they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him. And brought him to the apostles and declared to them. He took a risk. He put his arm around his shoulder. He said, no, I think this is of the Lord. There is something real here. You can see why they sent him, can't you, in chapter 11. Here is a man, well, look at verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Our friends, when the Lord's hand is on a church, you see leaders like this who are just thrilled at God's grace being at work. Verse 23, it's a lovely description, isn't it? When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he just encouraged them. He exhorted them. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Encouragement is putting strength into somebody with words and with actions. That's what encouragement is. Encouragement is not sentimental. It's not a hug or a cuddle or a hot water bottle or a blanket. Encouragement is putting strength into somebody with words and actions. Words that speak truth in love. Actions that meet needs in mercy. Oh, it can make such a difference to be an encourager. I want to remind you about Charlotte. I, I know several months ago I told told our evening folks about Charlotte. Let me remind you about Charlotte. I still remember the many warm encounters I had with this dear saint. She always looked into my eyes, held my hand and smiled gloriously. She wrote me notes, called me on the phone, invited me over for coffee. She celebrated my ministry and the ministry of others in our church family. She encouraged everybody at church. I so appreciated the songs you chose this morning. It fitted perfectly into the worship service. I so appreciated how you sang today with joy or with tears. 
Your children look like they're doing so well right now. You're doing an excellent job of raising them. You have used your time and your talent so wisely in serving this church family. Thank you so much for helping out in this project. I don't know how we would have done it without you. Thank you for volunteering in Sunday school. That Sunday school lesson made that story so applicable to my children's lives. Her encouragement did wonders for me at a time that I needed it. She made me want to teach better, raise my children better, live for Christ better. Charlotte kept me going. She kept a lot of people going. Friends, there there is no one you will meet here today at church, today or any Sunday. There is nobody you will meet here who arrives at church with an encouragement surplus. It's not true. Just feeling I'm so encouraged. I've had so much encouragement from people around me. I'm walking on air. I feel great. No, we need it. And this church, how wonderful. God sends them an encourager. Look, you're growing. You're, you're thriving. You're reaching out. Let me help you even more. Oh, churches with the Lord's hands, the Lord's hand upon it, have leaders like this. But not just encouragement. Isn't there wisdom here? Don't we need wise leaders? Look what Barnabas does. When he gets there, verse 25, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. What do growing churches need? As they grow out that way, what do they need? Roots, depth. Here's an expert teacher who Barnabas knew would do this new church the world of good. I'm going to get Saul. He's got a PhD. He's got the learning. He's been called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. To you, folks like you. So he goes and gets him. And forms a leadership team. Friends, you know, you've known me long enough to know. This is true. Somebody said, all the gifts a congregation needs for its growth are never found in one man. So true, isn't it? It's why we have elders here in our church family. Elders who don't always see things the same way as me. Who think, let's do this, let's try that. No, that's not going to be wise. This is what we need. (coughs) Don't think you need to be here, friends, behind the lectern. To do good to the people of God week by week. Oh, you don't. You can do a world of good. Sunday by Sunday. All of us serve. Friends, all serve. But some teach, some exhort, some encourage, some email, some write, some call, some visit. And here is what we're all doing at the heart of it. Exactly the same, verse 23. Looking for evidence of the grace of God at work. And when we see it, rejoicing in it. Rejoicing in it. Here's why I've added the fourth point. Number four. God at work means growth without empires. Growth without empires. When you see God at work in a church, when growth is taking place in all the right ways, well, here's what happens. Look look at the phrase that's used. A great number, verse 21, believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 24, here, here it is. A great many people were added to the church in Antioch. As it expanded its ministries and grew and grew. No, a great many people were added to the Lord. 
See, some, some church growth, when it happens, particularly if it happens quickly, some church growth can have a terrible disease at its heart, which is that the growth comes to mean more than the God who gives it. The growth takes over, becomes about numbers, our church, our ministry. We've become defined by people being added to our church. Verse 21, people turned to the Lord. People were added to the Lord. Friends, there's the thing. There's what helps the heart of the shepherd and should guide the shepherd. Yes, you might have been added to us. You've been coming along for months now. We love that. That's great. But that is never enough for us. It's not what we're really interested in. Are you added to the Lord? Are you His? That matters more than being ours. That, that, that's why at Trinity, if, if, you, if you're interested, if you want to know the criteria for being a member, the criteria for church membership is the same as the criteria for being a Christian. End of story. Saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you belong to him, you can belong to us. The, the, the door to church membership has the same dimensions as the door to salvation. And that is the kind of growth we want, friends. People added to the Lord. Not empires. It's very important to remember this. The success of other ministries and the growth of other churches in our city and across the nation. The growth of other churches should never cost us anything. Shouldn't have to smile through gritted teeth as we look at it. Do you know that that old saying, any friend can share your sorrows, but it takes a true friend to share your successes. Because we envy, we're jealous, aren't we? But Acts says, no, if people are being added to the Lord, but Barnabas comes out, he doesn't say, oh, this is a threat to Jerusalem, can't have another big church in Antioch. No, he rejoices, we're glad, wherever it is happening. So here's the last one, number five. When God is at work, you see good works and generosity. You see good works and generosity. It just completes the picture, doesn't it? Where people are added to the Lord, they become, well, what do they become? Like the Lord. If you're joined to Christ, you become like Christ. Who gave himself. Who poured out his life. How amazing, these new Gentile believers, what do they do? Verse 28, 29, when they hear about need, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. John Wesley said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can. As long as ever you can. It's what they're doing isn't it? Hearing about a need. Take this. Take what I can give. I think verses 28 and 29 are really instructive for us. Christian giving. Christian giving might choose to be broad. Okay, We might choose to give to lots of different things. But do you notice this is giving to support the church. The brothers in Judea. See, here's the point. There is a world out there willing to give to almost every charity under the sun. 
but not willing to give to Christ's suffering people. I want to encourage you to give to the things that the world is not giving to. Give to the things that the world neglects, that it overlooks, that it doesn't care about, that doesn't get your name in lights with a big check beside it. And just notice this, friends. This is the first time in the book of Acts. Do you notice that the tide of generosity is now flowing the other way? Back upstream. Where did the gospel come from? Judea. Where is money going to as the gospel has gone out back to Judea? It's beautiful. It's exactly what you see when God is at work. The the people who receive the gospel late bring, bring the blessings of the gospel full circle back to the people who brought it. Amazing. Where are the next generations of missionaries going to come from? Isn't it true they are very likely going to come from the majority world? Africa, South America, China. And who are they going to bring the gospel to? Us. Back to us. The post-Christian secularized West. Oh, people say, I often hear people say, God doesn't seem to be at work. In our land, churches are declining. People aren't being saved. We're on the knife edge of persecution. Oh, brothers and sisters, learn, Luke says, learn, Act says, learn to trace the hand of God at work. Sometimes it looks like, well, sometimes it looks like you might expect people coming to faith. Sometimes it looks like unexpected suffering for which we can see no reason. Sometimes it looks like years of barrenness before people return to us with blessing and gospel bounty. Sometimes the hand of God at work is just what you will say over coffee today after church that will make all the difference to somebody's week. Keep them faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Sometimes the hand of the Lord at work is what you will give and no one else will know, but someone will benefit. So may it be. And dear friends, may God be with us. Amen.